our heads again, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Oh God, no power of hell, no skiff of men can ever pluck us from your hand. This is the power of Christ in us, those who are true believers, who have been bought by your precious blood. And God, now we pray as we come to contemplate your word that you will show yourself to us through the preaching of your word. Reveal your glory. Help us to feed upon your word as our daily bread. Help us to feed upon Christ and to see the majesty of who he is and what he has done for us. His power, his glory, all of his fullness revealed to us. We pray you feed our spirit till we are full and there's nothing left. Be with us through your spirit at this hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I was uh, reading about this restaurant called Bawabet Dimasht, which according to the World Guinness record in 2008, was the largest restaurant in the entire world. It is found in north of Israel in Damascus, in Syria. Believe it or not, it can serve 6,014 people at a time. It's a huge restaurant. But in order to do that, to be able to feed 6,000 people, the building costed $40 million to build. It has 54,000 square meters of dining area and uh, 2,500 square meters just for the kitchen. At the heights of his uh, customers, it has 1,800 staff employed. Can you imagine? To get it going. You can buy all sorts of food. Chinese food, Middle Eastern food, Indian food. Can you imagine what it takes to run such huge restaurants? And yet, friends, we come this morning, and here we have Jesus dealing with the same amount of people without money, without staff, without a building, without actual food, other than five loaves of bread and few fishes. And he manages to do the same exact thing. Why? Because, friends, this is nothing short of a miracle. Jesus provide a meal for 5,000 people. We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. Past week we have put the accelerator. Now in this week and coming weeks we will slow down a bit and zoom in into several signs and miracles that Jesus does that are, remember, intended to be a witness to the Jewish people that the Messiah has come. That Jesus Christ, in fact, is progressing, giving greater after greater miracle from what we saw in previous week. There seems to be a growing excitement, a growing word of mouth about people, about this miracle worker, Jesus Christ. However, this growing excitement is paired with uh, what we saw already last week, a growing and increasing unbelief from the Jews. All the way to chapter 11, which will be the end of the public ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And then, and then Jesus takes his disciples from that chapter on into the upper room discourse. So, in other words, there is an escalating popularity in Jesus, which is, however, paired with an escalating uh, controversy around Jesus Christ. You remember the claim that he has, the last uh, public miracle that we see here in Galilee as recorded in Gospel of John, takes place with this feeding of the 5,000. We are in between Jewish festivals. We saw last time there was a Pentecost. Today we come to the Feast of Passover of the Jewish people. And we just left last time, if you remember, 
Jesus was answering the critics from Jewish people about his healing of a paralytic, of a crippled man, and the fact that he had claimed that miracle on the Sabbath, allegedly breaking the Sabbath, but also he was claiming to be equal with God. And so now you have a series of miracles that are testifying to you that Jesus is indeed the creator. That like the creator, he has power to multiply food, power to walk upon water, we'll see in coming week, and other types of miracles. He has authority over nature. He indeed is equal with God. He has a divine intervention on behalf of people. And he, he answered to their physical need today, not just their spiritual needs. This uh, kind of miracle makes sense also in the Old Testament framework. If you think about what happened, in particular next week, the sermon that comes after the miracle, that just like Israel is in the wilderness, Jesus is out there in the hills of the Sea of Galilee. And this entire chapter, chapter 6, Shows us that Jesus, like Moses, gives God's people manna from heaven. Bread from heaven. And Jesus can work the same miracle that Moses did, even in a greater measure. In Old Testament terms also, we see example in Elijah. Remember, Jesus has come in the power of Elijah. In fact, uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42 to 44, we have a similar uh, people are eating and have some leftover as Elijah does a miracle providing food. But here in a greater degree, Jesus Christ in the power of Elijah multiply to prove his the fact that he's a Messiah. The Messiah has come in the power of Elijah, the prophet, we will see. And he's giving us bread from heaven. The true bread of heaven, we'll see next time, uh, that he will say, I am the bread of life. And therefore, that bread is me, and I give you eternal life. But what do we see in the, the act of the miracle today? Verses 1 to 15, is that as Jesus multiplies miraculously food, he does two things. He's testing his disciples' faith. Testing his disciples' faith. But he's also rejecting the superficial response of the crowd. You see that? The crowd will want to make him king, but Jesus rejects that. But he's testing the true disciples' faith. Uh, let us begin with our text. We see a problem in verses 1 to 7. The problem seems to be in our story that the, there is a hungry crowd and Jesus uses that situation to test the disciples' faith. How are we going to feed this huge and persistent crowd that comes after us? It is a numerous problem in the sense that there is a lot of people, verses 1 to 3. And remember the context. After these things, verse 1. After all the defense of Jesus before the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem about being equal with God. Now we have a series of miracles uh, that support the claim that he's equal with God. And Jesus and disciple has gone back to Galilee once again from Jerusalem. And there, they're on the other side of the lake. They're in near Bethsaida. Now Bethsaida is found on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. This is Philip's hometown. And it's interesting that Jesus will have a conversation in a few minutes with Philip, who grew up here. To test his faith. To test the disciples' faith. And there's here a large crowd. A great multitude. A huge amount of people. A mass of throng that uh, shows you how Jesus is getting more and more popular. Uh, that people are following him, him wherever he goes. But, as we will see, it's not just a following of true discipleship. That Jesus later will dismiss. Uh, this uh, will take several weeks to see. But there seems to be that the reason that they are following us, uh, Jesus and the disciple. Verse 2 tells us, because, in other words, the reason that they are following is not that they believe in Jesus. But that they are observing the signs. 
That any time that Jesus is coming back to Galilee, is getting more and more crowded to the point that he cannot even enter towns. People are just on a show. But again, the wrong reason. We saw this already. They follow not because they believe in Jesus, not because they embrace his message, but they are attracted by the miracles that this man is doing. They're impressed for the, the performance of Jesus upon the disease. Remember a few weeks ago, they heard about possibly that this paralytic in Jerusalem at the pool of Bethesda had been healed. They had heard about the noble son who is in Capernaum, the town next to Bethsaida. And uh, they hear about the water that had been turned into wine in the proximity of uh, the, the town of Cana in Galilee. But the focus is not faith and repentance in Jesus and his person, his message. Uh, their interest in is no difference than Herod, King Herod, who will be very fascinated by the miracles of Jesus. However, he's a wicked king. And on trials, he called Jesus just like a magician. Let's call this magician to my court. I want to see him do something nice in front of me to entertain me. But if Jesus fails to amuse me, then I'm going to kick him out with insults. And so this crowd is like fascinating and huge and they, they like the miracle. But when Jesus preaches, we'll see next week that he is the bread of life and that they must eat that bread. And that bread means you eat my flesh and my blood. And that pointing to the cost of discipleship. Then the crowds will say, oh, this is, this is too hard for us to believe. And they leave. They all leave. This huge crowd leaves. So the whole of them leaves in an instance we'll see in coming weeks. But verse 3 tells us that because of this large number, Jesus cannot just walk around in town. And so he goes in the mountain. He goes in the wilderness. This image of the wilderness, just like Israel in the wilderness. Open space away from the crowd, just with his disciples. Other gospels shows us that uh, the fact that the crowds were warning out Jesus and the disciples. They were worn out. They couldn't have a break. They didn't have a chance to even eat. So notice already that Jesus from the beginning of the story is actually reluctant. And it seems that he wants to move away from the crowds. Away from the spotlight of a city. And he goes out into the mountain. Because Jesus knows that these people are following him for... Because it's popular to follow Jesus. Because they're, they're fascinated by his miracles. Only because of their materialistic concern. They might be like nominal Christians. That it is cultural to them to go to church. And that's what they've done. That's they want to go to God. They want God to bless them. But they, have they really internalized the God's gospel message? They might have experienced God's goodness. And they will experience today. But they only go to God so that he may grant them their desires. They try, when Jesus tries telling them about repentance from sin, and if you ask them to take up their cross and follow Jesus, that they have no clue and interest in Jesus whatsoever. That Jesus is moving away from them. Does that describe us? You see, we can all get lost in the crowd, friends, that the way is narrow. And few are those that find it. That a true child of God follows Jesus. Not for what he does. But for who he is. That he is Lord. God of everything. Including all the details of your life. You follow him for the message. For the bread of life. That the word of God. God's word in all his parts. And you make the death and resurrection of Jesus yours. By faith. And now that he has saved you, you follow him, whether it's easy or it's hard, whether it's popular or it's unpopular. And you follow him as a true disciple, with or without the miracle. You obey the word to the point of sacrificing everything for Jesus. But that is not the case of the crowds. Um, but let us continue in the story. There's this impossible problem. There's huge crowds. They're following after. And verse 4 comments that this happens at the time of the Passover. That tells you that there's a considerable time between the previous chapter 5, which happened in uh, Pentecost of 31 AD. And now we come to Passover of 32 AD. Which means there's a lot of ministry Jesus has done. And it's just one year before 
Next year, Passover, Jesus will die in Jerusalem. He will die on the cross. And uh, as a result of the controversy with the religious leaders, although he's supposed to go to Jerusalem, he stays in Galilee. Because, we'll see, there's a price on his head. But verse 5 tells us, Jesus up in the mountains, he lifts his eyes up, and, and he noticed something. That the disciples are no longer alone. They wanted to be alone in the desert, and there comes a great crowd once again. That follow and found him even in the mountain, and they come toward him. Here they are. Here's Jesus. Thousands of them, they're coming. And they're here to see Jesus. They can't stay away from him. And they come such a long way from the city and they want to touch him. They want to hear his word. They want to see his miracle. And Jesus cannot avoid being followed. Even when he goes into the desert outside the city. The other gospels tell us that the evening was approaching now. So some disciples probably suggest Jesus from the other gospels tells us, send the crowd away. I mean, this is a desolate place. You got 5,000 people that are coming after you, Jesus. It's like... Israel in the wilderness. There's no food. There's no trees of the fields. There's no uh, grain. There's, there's no marketplace or houses that they can buy food. So let them go back to the villages. Let them find shelter because we got nothing to, to, to give them. And Jesus perhaps is looking at all these crowds. And they're following him. Men, women, with children. Exhausted from the heat. Exhausted from the long journey. And he has pity on them. And he decides that he will feed them bread. Now all the gospels begin this story by Jesus saying, You yourself give them something to eat. And probably they started a discussion with the disciples. It's like, are you kidding? How are we going to find all this food for 5,000 people? I mean, we have nothing. And so... Here in our text, Jesus turns to Philip. There in verse 5. And he asks Philip this question. And here's the test. Where shall we buy bread so that this great multitude may eat, Philip? You look at this question, friend, not as an American. Realize that in many parts of the world still today, to have an empty stomach before the end of the day is a daily struggle. We cannot even imagine what it felt like. And here you have 5,000 empty stomachs. And the other gospel tells us that Jesus was concerned that all these people, you send them away to the village, they're going to faint on the road. And so notice first of all that the, therefore that there's a compassion of Jesus in this text. That he has compassion about, uh, uh, for all these neglected, wandering sheep. And he doesn't just meet their spiritual needs, but he meets their, their physical needs. Yes, God gives us spiritual food, but he also provides for us our daily bread. That doesn't come from our mustering up, but it comes from God, from his providence. And he promises in his word to take care of those who neglect themselves to actually follow him. That he will go an extra step to provide even before we ask. That is the beauty of, of this miracle. That he, he provides and grants us therefore assurance. That if you pursue God's kingdom first. Then he, all, all those things will, shall be given to you. And he models for us that we, as we engage with people. That we want to help them in the need of the souls as well as the need of the body as well as the need of the spirit. There's all the dimension of needs listed for us. The whole person. However, we don't put one dimension against the other. They must uh, go hand in hand. Jesus is bothered, as we will see in the coming verses, but focusing only on the physical dimension of the miracle. The miracles are not just, in this case, a humanitarian respond to the need. But they should lead the person who has witnessed to this uh, feeding of 5,000. To realize that Jesus can supply the deepest spiritual hunger. I am the bread of life. See, the, the gospel must not never be lost into some social work. That's the problem of countless 
so-called Christians today. Friend, if a, if a person who is poor still goes to hell after you feed his stomach, you still got the deeper problem. And that is the problem of this crowd, countless people. But Jesus' question to Philip remains, how shall we find food to feed this great multitude? So I remember about this Christian movie where after this victory on the football field, the coach goes to the, to the uh, room, locker room with, us, with all the players and says, can you believe it? And he asks question after question. Wasn't it impossible that this happened? Wasn't it impossible? And they're all like, yes, it was. And yet we did it. But this time, the question comes before the miracle. Where do we find enough food for so many people? And John comments the true purpose of Jesus right here. The question is, he said this to prove Philip. To test him. Put him to trial. To discover the nature of Philip's faith by putting it to the test. He wants to see, Jesus, whether the character of Philip has grown to compare to where we first met Philip. You remember? Weeks ago, weeks ago we met Philip under a, a tree. You remember that? Under a fig tree. He was doubting back then. He thought that nothing good could come out of Nazareth, where Jesus come from. And now Philip is about to witness, remember the warning of that uh, prophecy, far greater miracles than the initial words to him, I saw you under the fig tree. Philip, you're about to see 5,000 people eating foods out of heaven. Philip will continue indeed to struggle with his faith. We find him in chapter 14. Uh, the, 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 he still has question on how is it that he, Jesus is equal with God. But the question of Jesus for, was for the disciples. This is a teaching moment for us as followers of Jesus. Not for himself because he knows what he's about to do. He already has a plan. And, and, and it's interesting the way he goes about to perform the miracle as a didactic moment for the disciples. And the answer of Philip in verse 7 is, is, uh, shows us that he fails the test. Okay? If only he would have remembered what we saw last time. Chapter 5, verse 19. All that the Father does, the Son does also. If only he would have remembered those words. He knows that just like the Father can create out of nothing this entire creation, the Son is able to provide, infinitely able to provide... The answer would have been very different. But here, Philip only seeks an earthly solution to the problem. He doesn't involve the supernatural or the one who is standing next to him. Jesus. He already had proven to him his power multiple times. But Philip's only answer is this. 200 denarii will not be enough. That everyone has a little bit of bread. Now these silver coins... Uh, the, the denarii back then was a one day of wage. And so, and so 200 of them may correspond to $40 today, which doesn't sound like a lot. But back then, without inflation, it was eight months of pay. Almost an entire year's wage. What Philip is saying is it will take a fortune for us to find the money, go back into the village, and then come back with all that money spent which we don't have clearly to actually not 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 just to feed, feed them but not even to give them a little not even for everyone to have a little small bite of bread let alone completely feed them and their hunger i mean that would be impossible we don't have that money jesus essentially philip's comment that this is a, a, an impossible task okay and Jesus is probably thinking, okay, faith is not working in the engine of my disciples. They are failing the test. But as Peter Kreeft once says, only in a world where faith is difficult can faith exist. Okay? How would you have reacted in a situation like this? Would you only look at what is humanly possible? Looking at the practicalities of the situation. Jesus, I cannot afford that. Or would you expect Jesus to actually miraculously meet the need? 
Sad reality is that we, like the disciples, tend to be very short-sighted. That we would rather God send away our problems somewhere else. Isn't it true? Rather than saying, Okay, God, maybe you want to be glorified through this problem right here. Instead of saying, Oh, Lord, this is too much for me to handle. Pray, Lord, you brought this into my life. And I know that you are powerful. What do you want me to do? It's a different attitude. That is why we need to think of faith more like a mindset. Okay? It is not a one-time act. It is a mindset that is tested over and over again. And that tells you that rather than anxiously seeking to manage your problems on your own strength, on your own resources, you put God in the picture and expect Him to act in that specific situation. That is a whole different thing. That when you want to see spiritual change and conversion in people, in your family that looks completely lost, but even in the mundane problems, like making ends meet at work, that when we act on the expectation of Christ to act, then all your fears can be overcome. And there you receive the beautiful answer of God that we see here. As you don't think about just what is humanly possible, like Philip, Think about our situation. We are indeed a small congregation and we have this expensive project on our sanctuary and it looks like impossible. And yes, we must be wise and discerning. I'm not suggesting a lack of wisdom, but you factor God in your life that your true faith is tested, tried, seasoned through being exposed to impossible situations over and over again. And friend, you have to, you have to embrace that. You have to seek to say, Lord... Help me to grow through this. We saw from Titus in our evening service. Chapter 1. And everyone, by the way, is invited tonight at 6. We continue in Titus. But there was a testing even in the church in chapter 1. For leadership. For being a deacon. For, for being an elder. A probation from God that is actually good. And so that you learn the lesson of faith through the ways in which God tests you in the past. And Philip's faith, like all of, of Jesus' disciples, is still in process. Look at that. The disciples will fail over and over again to, to get, get to have eyes to see. Philip doesn't seem to even be able to contemplate everything beyond what is humanly possible. And if that's you, friend, realize that true faith relies on divine resources. Not your material strength. Not what is available before your eyes. But the resources of the Creator. That God doesn't need your help. And that is often the way in which we realize how the gospel came to us. The way the gospel functions, it is not through your works. It is not through your own achievement. Not what makes sense to you, but only by grace through faith, which means trust, reliance in the work and provision of another. That Jesus ultimately has done it, has finished it. And behind Philip's answer, sadly, is the standard secular response of this world. We saw this movie Friday night. We had a movie night here, very, very nice. And we saw this evidence from Exodus. And you have these scholars and scientists who have the evidence right in front of their faces, but because of their, the way that, they, the, the, the lens that they are looking at it, no, this cannot be what the scripture says, right? It has to be wrong. The strict naturalistic perspective, but a miracle, friend, defeats every law of what is logically possible. So if you seek to know the truth, you realize that Jesus is divine, and divine means here that the impossible become possible. And you are confident that Jesus as we saw, as compassion is interested in the well-being of, of, of the creature. And he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That without faith it's impossible to see this God. That as we will see, miracles become pointless without this faith. And we come out of the comfort zone of what is possible. And we embrace the fact that with God... The problem can be solved. Let us look at the second point. The solution brought by Jesus. Verse 8 to 13. Jesus now feeds the huge crowd. But there is also another aspect. He becomes annoyed by their enthusiastic 
superficial reaction. Verse 8, now after the failed first test, another disciple steps in, Andrew. He ventures a possible solution to the problem uh, through a child who has perhaps has heard the, the question of Jesus to the disciples and immediately he brings some food to Jesus. That shows you how sometimes children can get what we adults fail to get. Perhaps he's already showing a faith like a child that he, at least he tries to show this mustard seed of faith, okay? And comes with this unlikely proposal. He says, five barley loaves and two small fishes. That's all we got, Jesus. Nobody else brought any food with them and five loaves. Can you take five loaves for 5,000? No, you can't. It's like trying to dress an entire army with one uniform, trying to buy a house with one penny, or bridge the Great Canyon with your foot. It's impossible. What are they among so many? What good they can be when we got 5,000 people. It would be a drop in the bucket. It would certainly not be enough, wouldn't they? And yet, faith means trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. That miracles are by definition human impossible. And here this small, modest attempt to contemplate the impossible, still full of doubts, but at least is a step forward. That is the mean that God, through Jesus, is pleased to use to provide a real answer through a child. We are, after all, called to have faith like a child, aren't we? Not everything the child is in view when we say faith like a child, but children are known for embracing growth and challenges at face values. Here the boy heard Jesus' question and immediately brought some food without ifs, without buts. But there is a confidence that in a child we, we, we consider irrational, right? Immature, naive. But that's precisely what God wants to have as we embrace the situation. Children are, don't have that critical thinking that some of us as adults uh, leads us into skepticism. Children follow what you say, believe what you tell them. It sticks with them. They have a certain level of innocence. What we may appear childish proposal to our rational eyes is actually the starting point that God used to begin His work. No matter how little, no, more, no matter how small, in the hands of God, is always more than enough. Yes, Christ still uses means to achieve a miracle, but these means are meager so that God gets the glory. And that's a lesson for us as a church, that God can take your few fishes, your little bread, and multiply them. Countless, if you trust in Him. We may have scarce funds, we may have a little church, but... What can an, an omnipotent God do if we trust Him? May this be a lesson for us in the future as God may test us from time to time. And that leads us, as you step out, to a bounty provision. Verse 10, Jesus commands them to sit down. It's almost like saying, you disciples, wait and see. The dinner is about, about to start here. And He sits them on an open field for an open-air picnic, and we have some approximate head-counting, 5,000 men, which means not counting the women and children. This is a huge, and it's about 5,000, which could be more than 5,000. And now Jesus takes charge in verse 11. And before he does the miracle, he gives thanks. He lifts his eyes toward heaven, other gospel tells us. And the crowds are like, what is he doing? He's having lunch in front of us. And, and what about us? Five loaves, two fishes. How can we be thankful so that thousands of people eat? Because the Father is behind this miracle. Jesus knows that the Father will answer and He gives thanks. And this bread came from heaven, remember. Because of the following discussion, I am the bread of life. It is not wrong to see this miracle on the mountain and the form of giving thanks and giving the bread to the disciples as a symbol of the death of Christ. That this meal, after all, remember, happens at Passover. 
This is their Passover meal. And Jesus is the Passover lamb who gives bread, breaks his bread. And for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he provides a filling through me, through Jesus, through his death. But Jesus' disciples are still perplexed. As, uh, you know, Jesus is handing out the bread. He says, you go and feed them. 5,000. may seem ridiculous, but it may seem perplexed, but they still be. And out of that nowhere, here come countless bread and fish from the hand of God. I mean, can you imagine what comes next? They, they, they cannot believe their eyes. That the voices are shocking. They, they give bread to, to a passing of a baton or a wireless phone Chinese whisper. Everyone is passing the bread. No one knows from, from where these fishes and bread comes from. And look at the text. They eat as much as they wanted without limit. You just don't give a taste to 5,000 people. You make their tummies full to the very last person. And verse 12 says, When they were filled, Jesus ordered them to gather the leftover so that nothing gets waste. This is a huge miracle. Twelve baskets. I mean, these are huge, huge, large containers, okay? That's how far the miracle went. 5,000 people ate. And in addition of women and children, not only ate, but they have their full and they have 12 huge baskets. That is breaking all the laws of logic, so to speak. That Just like William Lake Riggs once says, a miracle is an event which is not producible by the natural causes in effect at the time and place the event of course. That is the hand of God, friends. There you have it. Where are those standards answers of Andrew and Philip now? They're gone. That this is beyond your human capability of understanding. That God truly accomplishes the miracle. It shows that God really cares and provides for your need. He says, ask and you will receive. It will be given to you. Just like he feeds the birds of the sky. And not one of them falls to the ground without the Father assent. How much more of you and I, men and women of little faith. That should lead you to realize that I don't need to worry about my daily needs, the way that I'm consumed, because God provides. That you've, you put God first and everything follows. I mean, I'm sure you experienced this many times in your life, if you've been following the Lord that God shows to you. I was talking with somebody this the other day. He used to come to this church and his house got on fire. However, there was a woman just passing by. And she was out on her way. She's just come to town. And she looks, stops and starts saying, hey. And, and they start to talk. And at the perfect timing, it comes the blessing. They, they're able to move and, and then re rebuild the house and come back. That is the way that God always provides. Every single time. That after all, He is God. And that He is good. He sends us green pastures like here. He commands you to obey. How do you obey? By sitting and waiting for His hand. As He multiplies, not for some, but for the totality and more people that were following Him. This shows that Jesus has creative power at hand. That He is indeed God on the flesh. He makes food out of nothing. Just like the Father. He is our provider if you trust Him. Not only that, but he, nothing gets lost, even your leftovers. However bountifully, if you're a believer in Christ, however bountifully you have experienced the grace of God in your life, and He has bestowed it to you as a believer, there's always room for more than enough to go to the reservoir of grace in God and get another hand of grace and another hand of a second and third time that teaches you that you also must steward what He gives you. Did you reuse the surplus that He gives you for the purpose of what is good, to reflect the generosity that He has given you for the kingdom of God? Let us look at, however, the response here in, in verse 14 and 15, the end of our, our text. There's something to notice about this miracle. And it's the evasive response of Jesus to the enthusiastic crowd okay that is part of the miracle 
that as soon as people saw, verse 14, as soon as they realized that the great miracle had just happened through Jesus, that no one could literally come and bring all this food on the mountain for that many people. Notice, therefore, that this is a public display of Jesus' power. So far we saw um, a private miracle, but now it's everyone at the same time have a taste of the miracle. 5,000 people, they realize all together that their mouths have witnessed a miracle all at the same split second. Can you imagine the atmosphere? You're here with a crowd of more than 5,000, like a stadium. Probably 500 hands, 5,000 hands and voices shouting, a round of applause. And the crowds look at Jesus and, and shouts this, Truly, which means beyond any shadow of a doubt now, He must be the prophet. Messiah, they shout. The one they have been expecting for so long. Our deliverer, the prophet Par excellence, we saw this in chapter 1. The one who foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Messiah has come into the world. Friends, the kingdom of God is among us. This miracle aroused such popular response. And I'm sure that the Jewish authority, the, the Roman authority are, are worrying for a danger of an uprising. Okay, This is real stuff. The, the crowds are saying the right thing here, okay? This is Messiah, the prophet. So uh, it's real word and true word. However, we learned that beyond this initial excitement, you can go to a Trump rally. I've been to a Trump rally in Michigan. Man, we had a line, a waiting line for, you know, miles outside the city to get actually in. But beyond, behind this initial excitement, it remains a volatile reaction. It's driven only by an interest for the supernatural. Misunderstanding the purpose, as we'll see in coming weeks of the miracle. At the end of chapter 6, I am the bread of life. The purpose of the miracle is not for you to have your belly full. But that you believe in the Son of God. That you embrace His death and on the cross. You drink his bread, his, his flesh, and his blood by believing in his sacrifice. That he died for you on the cross. And now you follow me. Even at the price of your personal sacrifice. Even if it leads you to death, you follow me. Instead, the happy crowd here for the full belly, they want to make him a king. They want him to be the Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah that they are looking for. Not the one who has to die in the shameful cross. John wants you to see that this is the wrong superficial response. That perhaps they got some truth right about Jesus. But they are unaware that the Messiah has come to die for, their, for the sins of, of the wicked humanity. And that he calls us to a life of identification with that cross. In a cost of discipleship. Verse 15. Jesus realized. They, he perceived that they went about to come and seize him. To take him by force. Okay. Let's gather him. He is our leader. They want to make him king. Friend that will actually be. True thing to do for Jesus. Because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Absolutely. But they, the problem here is not the issue. Of, of what they are saying. Because he deserved to be crowned, but because they misplaced an expectation of what the Messiah actually will do. They thought the Messiah has come to free us from the Romans, to reestablish the kingdom of David. And this issue will rise again in chapter 18. But also, the hour of my exaltation through the cross has not yet come. And so, Jesus is neither, friends, a mascot for your own personal project. He's not a showman or a movie star to be used for the benefit of, uh, as we see, mega churches and popular forms of Christianity today. What Jesus is interested in is not people who make money out of him. They get their bellies full by feeding on the blessings that he gives as an end to itself. But rather he's interested in people who trust him, who trust his message, who follow his word, who actively and persevere in that word. There's too many people here for a narrow path. There's too many people to enter in the narrow gates. 
That's why none of this can happen on your own. God needs to draw you truly to himself. And I want to say this, even in our camp, in, even in conservative reformed churches, there's a kind of theology right now that goes out that sets up this similar failed ex- expectation of Christ. They want to make him king. They want him to rule. The current emphasis that I see, and I'm not saying that necessarily everything is wrong or what's happening, but there's some misplaced expectation that we must consider, friend. That you look for a national political advantage for Christianity, which is not necessarily wrong in itself, but it becomes popular in the church and can raise concern in light of the text that we have this morning. There's a completely different viewpoint here. When Christian becomes overly optimistic about the future, enthusiastic like the crowd here, focus upon gaining places of power and influence, they wanted to dominate, conquer, and reign in this earth. Even through thing, Christ is Lord and coming to reign and indeed. But just like here, they're not telling you the whole story. That these truths belong first of all to God. That he decides when and how to bring them to pass. That the truths of God's word are not at our momentary disposal for selfish goal, selfish exaltation. We should first thank the Lord for the spiritual food that he appoints us through the word of God. Are are you thirsty for that? Every morning, every Sunday morning you come here. That should be your starting point. And never depart from this to utilize it for a political purpose. That the eternal life is in the Word. And that's the essence of what you need. That Jesus came to establish more than a physical kingdom. In Calvary, He didn't retaliate to these earthly powers. And He didn't simply create physical food. To satisfy our physical craving. But in that bread. Jesus was broken. So that he might feed your soul. That are empty. Empty of life. Empty of any righteousness of your own. And that friend is what you need the most. Therefore you mean to be first emptied of your pride. And self righteousness. Before he can actually feed you. And yes. Then you live out this. I'm not suggesting that. You know, there's no influence in, in, in your society as a Christian. But it should not become your primary obsession like the crowd here. Okay? Sharing your, 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 your bounty with people. Absolutely. But you make sure the gospel and not a political project get magnified. You make sure you stick faithful to the reality that there's no crown without the cross. And he is the one who gets crowned. Not me and you. Not your personal agenda. The, the, the failure of the crowds here is that the kingdom is not from down here. That means the kingdom of God does not proceed according to earthly schemes. Not from the world, but from above. That was the greatest misconception among these Jewish people. And I'm afraid that just like they misconstrued the first coming of Christ, we can misconstrue the second coming of Christ. A lot of professing Christians may be disappointed of what is coming. That is not an optimistic, you know, uh, we're going to reign and this and that. Worse, they might be even deceived by what the scripture tells us will be a lawless end and the exaltation of an antichrist which sits in the place of Christ that promised through a false form of Christianity that the, 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 the worldly aspect of a kingdom that is nothing like the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus does is he departs. We conclude with this story. He departs. He withdraws. Again, he runs to the hill by himself. He's rejecting their offer to make him a king. He's not pleased by their superficial, triumphalistic response. We saw weeks ago, both he and John the Baptist do not seek the spotlight of popularity. He goes alone to pray. Not even the disciples. And he gets out. So once again, let me conclude here. Just like John the Baptist, we have a humble picture of our Savior. That owns all the glory in the world. And yet he flees from men seeking to make him a king. Because the way of the kingdom was going to be expanded. Was not according to their idea. Which was uh, by the way a cover up for their rebellious spirit. No. Jesus kingdom come through the shame of the cross. Through the meek inheriting the earth. 
Through the last becoming first, through the humble being exalted, through this upside down kingdom that has nothing to do with the logic of this world. Secondly, it was not the time and place. Yes, there will come a time, friend, when Jesus will indeed be finally recognized as king over all the earth. But remember, his kingdom not, not a, does not operate according to the parameters of this world. So let me conclude with an encouragement and a warning that I see in this miracle of feeding of 5,000. Okay? The encouragement is this, that you can come this morning and feed at the meal that Jesus serves you. That indeed, you get a glimpse of God in this miracle. What it looks like to be fed by God. What it looks to realize that Jesus cares also about your physical need. That He provides even when you have little. Even when you have nothing. That He can even superabound your expectation. And think of the widow of Sarepta in the Old Testament. During the famine, here comes the prophet Elijah. And even through the fa famine, the oil never ran out. She always had enough. And so for us, is, what is the point to get anxious therefore? That Jesus feels, feeds your whole person, particularly your spirit. I mean, how many of us are still hungry at heart? They're starving in your mind and soul, lacking what truly can satisfy you emotionally, spiritually. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. That Christ is willing and able to provide for that too. Jesus is our true Passover meal, friend. Our manna from heaven, as we'll see next week, that grants you eternal life. You eat from Jesus. You live forever. But there's also a warning. And let me conclude with that. Friend, when you focus on the external bread, when you focus on the external of an earthly king, okay, and you make that the source of your personal fulfillment, even if you place Christianity on top of it, you are misdirecting your path. And you miss the true point of the miracle. That Jesus has no time to waste with a mentality of going after him as a, going after a pop star. Or seeking an earthly Christ to fix the problems of the kingdom of, of this world which is about to be destroyed. Or maybe a miracle worker for a miracle's sake. And then you miss the whole point of this story that Jesus is not a source of revenue or a political project or no it leads you to surrender in faith to the creator who has come into the flesh in Jesus Christ and that friend requires you even to go through some testing as his follower one step a small step of faith at a time and may he not find us wanting let not your answer and behavior be no different what that that one an atheist in this world can produce with his own sources. You can pray the Lord for daily bread, yes. But if you make the pursuit of daily bread your, your end goal, instead of Christ, who he is, and why you need to believe his word, then I'm sorry. You missed the whole point of this feeding of the 5,000s. And what is the message of the feeding of the 5,000? Let me repeat it once again. That behind the bread multiplied... Is the bread of life. And friend, you, you better eat that imperishable bread. Rather than just eat your physical bread. He provides for you. You feed your belly. And you still perish. Let us pray.